Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 37, The Trident. As we saw at the end of last week's episode, the campaign of 1916 promised to be the most violent year of the war thus far. With Falkenhayn's operation at Verdun, keeping the French pinned in one corner, and Conrad's Tyrolean offensive asserting pressure on the Italians, the Austro-German alliance sought to break the tethers of the Entente before its superior war resources could be harnessed. But just as the Allied counteroffensives prepared to bring the land war to a violent crescendo, the war in the North Sea was ready to answer in kind. After two years of inactivity, the great battle fleets of the British Empire and Imperial Germany would finally meet one another in the decisive naval battle of the Great War. In the late afternoon of Wednesday, May 31, 1916, the German High Seas Fleet would make contact with the Royal Navy Grand Fleet, 120 miles off the coast of Denmark. Throughout the evening and into the following morning, the long-anticipated meeting between the two naval juggernauts would play out in dramatic fashion, as the two sides tried to outduel the other. In total, 249 warships, 99 German and 150 British, would take part in the ensuing contest. When the smoke cleared and the surviving ships returned to port, the results of the battle left more questions than answers. In short, both sides would claim victory. For the British, the Battle of Jutland, the name given due to its proximity to the Danish peninsula, was a pryic victory in every sense of the word. Despite holding the advantage in ships and firepower, they were unable to deliver the decisive victory everyone envisioned. The German fleet had slipped through their fingers, and in the process, extracted a much heavier toll. Three battlecruisers, three armored cruisers, one destroyer flotilla leader, and seven destroyers lay at the bottom of the North Sea and 6,097 sailors were killed in action. These losses humbled a nation which for over a century expected their navy to defeat any challenger in a single decisive engagement, carrying the Nelsonian tradition to a new generation. Instead, the Grand Fleet, the most powerful arm of the Royal Navy, returned home empty-handed. Its prey had escaped, and its invincibility almost shattered. But as the British counted their losses, the Germans celebrated a naval victory for the first time in their nation's history. They had met the full might of the British Grand Fleet, sunk more ships and killed more sailors than the enemy, and yet the Battle of the Skagerrak, the German acumen for the battle, had shaken something deep within their psyche. The High Seas Fleet Commander-in-Chief, Vice Admiral Reinhard Scheer, had violated his number one rule, which was to never engage the British armadas at full strength, and the experience of seeing the mighty Grand Fleet bearing down on him was the very nightmare which had kept him up at night. After returning to Wilhelmshaven, the German admiral would never again risk his capital ships in the open seas, keeping them within the haven of home waters. This is what makes the Battle of Jutland such an interesting case study. For one, historians continue to debate who actually won the battle, and secondly, unlike everything else we've seen so far, the battle was not the result of strategic planning or foresight. The two fleets stumbled into one another accidentally and their meeting was as much a shock to the men on board as it was to the curious public who learned about it in the days that followed. So in order to cover all the confusion leading up to and during the battle, we're going to spend the next three episodes going over its various aspects. This week will be all about its origins and context, with the next two episodes detailing the battle itself and its aftermath. There will be a lot to take away from all this, so rest assured it'll all be well worth it. 
We'll start this week with a brief review of the North Sea Theater after the suspension of the first Debo campaign. It's been a bit of time talking about the four men who would lead their fleets into action on that day. For the Germans, Admirals Reinhard Scheer and Franz Hipper, and for the British, Admiral Sir John Jellicoe, Commander-in-Chief of the Grand Fleet, and 1st Battlecruiser Squadron Commander David Beatty. But before we begin, I want to offer my apologies for not keeping the show regularly updated. Over the summer, things got totally out of whack on my end. Work demands kept me from the show longer than I anticipated, and before I knew it, I had dug myself into a hole with no way of climbing out. So instead of cutting corners to make up for lost time, I took a bit of a break to collect my thoughts, do some more research, and take things a little slower before I totally burned out. On top of that, the missus and I recently moved to Toronto, Ontario, where we plan on starting a life together. So as you can imagine, things got really exciting very quickly, and the show had to take a backseat for a few weeks. The good news is that things are starting to settle down a bit, and once we get the new base of operations set up, the show will resume a regular format. I'm still tinkering with the details, but I'll be sure to let you know once I get that figured out. In the meantime, I'm going to have to ask for just a bit more of your patience as things get rounded out. Rest assured, the show is not going anywhere. We still have way too much stuff to talk about, plus Podbean just renewed my $130 annual hosting fee, so you know I might as well put it to good use. So when we last left the North Sea Theater, the Germans had been propelled to end their first submarine campaign and recall the U-boats back to home port. A mix of appalling losses and increasing pressure from the United States post-Lusitania had forced Kaiser Wilhelm to weigh his options and call an end to the experiment. From February to September 1915, U-boats had sent 787,120 tons of Allied shipping to the bottom of the North Sea, at a cost of nearly half the U-boat fleet. When news arrived that the submarine campaign was cancelled, naval leaders in Germany were outraged. Alfred von Tirpitz, for example, attempted to resign in protest. But as 1915 gave way to 1916, pressures from the home front propelled Germany's leaders to again open discussion on how to challenge Britain's maritime blockade. The civilian population, now 16 months under tight trade restrictions, were showing undeniable signs of strain. Food rationing, introduced that January, had been a temporary stopgap. As bread, coffee, sugar, potatoes, fresh meat and dairy became scarce, everyone knew it would not be long before panic spread across the country. Indeed, Berlin would see its first food riot in December 1915, and Christmas of that year was a particularly drab affair, with hams and pastry sweets being almost impossible to come by. In response, the bureaucratic body which oversaw trade and importation, the War Raw Materials Office under Walter Rathenau, was forced to supplement the maritime trade deficit by leading heavily on neutral Dutch, Swedish, and Norwegian markets. With their Baltic trade partners feeling the burn, London soon countered with an economic blacklist, strictly forbidding the Baltic nations from shipping anything of military use into Germany. As we saw in episode 28, the demands of total war meant that products headed for civilian markets were now classified as military commodities. Examples such as railway equipment, fertilizer, medical supplies, cotton, steel coil, rubber, ball bearings, and wooden planks were now liable for confiscation and it was not long before foodstuffs and other consumables were added to this list. These internal and external pressures had put Germany into a delicate spot. On the political front, a resumption of the submarine campaign was a risky play. Although she remained neutral, the attitude of the United States could no longer be discounted. President Wilson's reaction to the Lusitania and Arabic sinkings had nearly cost the Germans on the continent. Bulgaria had wavered her allegiance, while the Greeks and Romanians remained neutral. 
If America had cut off diplomatic ties, as she threatened to do, Germany would have lost out on these potential allies. But as we know, despite America's diplomatic threat, 1915 had been a pretty good year for the Central Powers, at least on the military front. With Bulgaria now as an ally, and Russia and Serbia eliminated from contention, it meant that the alliance enjoyed some strategic wiggle room. As preparations for Verdun and Tyrol were getting underway, the Navy too was on the verge of a new stratagem, which marked a radical departure from the previous year. In January 1916, Admiral Hugo von Pohl, the architect of the first submarine campaign, was forced to take leave from office after developing cancer of the stomach. In his place, Wilhelm promoted Pohl's old chief of staff, who, like Tirpitz, believed Germany should attack her enemies with every weapon at her disposal. The new C&C of the High Seas Fleet was 53-year-old Vice Admiral Reinhard Scheer. Reinhard Scheer officially took over Germany's war fleet on February 23, 1916, and his appointment brought a sigh of relief from the beleaguered navy. He was a new, cold-calculating leader with an established reputation as a tactician. Scheer represented everything the German fleet was designed to be. Young, aggressive, confident, and never too shy for a fight, Scheer's climb to supreme command began as a 15-year-old cadet. Born into a middle-class family, Reinhard Scheer entered the German Navy in 1882, at a time when it was nothing more than a handful of ships on loan from other European nations. In simpler times, Scheer's middle-class background would have prevented him from any great advancement. But as the fleet expanded under the gaze of Alfred von Tirpitz, Scheer found the opportunity swing open. Like Tirpitz, Scheer took a keen interest in torpedoes, and in 1900, made his mark by publishing a textbook on the tactical use of the experimental weapon. This won him the attention of Tirpitz, who, in 1903, gave him a post in the Navy office where he worked with his new patron on expanding the fleet and drafting the naval laws. After two years of land service, Scheer was promoted to captain in 1905, and went back to sea commanding a number of battleships where he gained a reputation as a strict disciplinarian whose meticulous attention to gunnery tactics earned him the nickname Shooting Bob. Although he was a proven officer, his personality was what set him apart from his contemporaries. He was unapologetic in his belief that Germany's ships were superior to the British, and German officers and men to be every bit their equal. In December 1914, now a 47-year-old Vice Admiral, he took command of the 3rd Battle Squadron, consisting of the newest dreadnoughts in the Imperial Fleet. Having read the exploits of Admiral von Spee's Far East Squadron, it did not take long for Scheer to begin chafing under the Kaiser's imposed inactivity. Despite never engaging in combat, his 18 months of continuous war service qualified him for supreme command, and having served as Hugo von Pohl's chief of staff, was next in line when the top job became vacant. Before we go any further, it is important to point out that Scheer inherited a navy which was still searching for its identity. Unlike the established Royal Navy, whose ships reflected a more confident naval tradition, with the likes of the HMS Victory, St. Vincent, Collingwood, Centurion, and Conqueror, the German fleet really had no tradition to call its own. Most of its ships were named after Prussian army officers or major cities. For example, the Seidlitz, Scharnhorst, Blücher, Hanover, and Stuttgart. Even Scheer's own flagship was named after none other than Frederick the Great. My point here is that Scheer inherited a navy which was still in its infancy. The Far East Squadron under von Spee had been the first to really make their mark in the big book. Their pan-Pacific voyage and victory at Coronel was an amazing feat by a nation which two decades earlier had no navy to speak of. Scheer was eager to build a legacy which the Imperial Navy could be proud of. His ships were ready, his officers and crew were trained, 
and the only thing he needed to do was convince the Kaiser to allow regular sorties. The good news for Scheer was that there was no want of encouragement among the naval staff. Scheer wanted to resume regular sorties by bringing the high seas fleet out of the Heligoland in direct challenge of Britain's authority. This was, after all, the very purpose for which it was designed for, and having spent decades pouring millions into the project, the idea that the fleet would remain rusting at anchor was, in Scheer's mind, nothing short of cowardice. In January 1916, Scheer's future chief of staff, Adolf von Trotha, wrote the following in a memorandum which epitomizes the attitude of many frustrated naval staff. Trotha writes, quote, There can be no faith in a fleet which had been brought through the war intact. We are at present fighting for our existence. In this life and death struggle, I cannot understand how anyone can think of allowing any weapon which could be used against the enemy to rust in its sheath. End quote. Indeed, Trotha's words were music to the ears of officers and men, whose biggest challenge so far had been to keep the cobwebs from settling. Many had brothers, cousins, fathers, or nephews serving on the continent, and the horrific casualty reports which filtered through daily was enough to send morale plummeting. But the Germans weren't the only ones suffering from boredom on the naval side. Across the North Sea, the English were clamoring for action as well, and men like Reinhard Scheer and Adolf von Trotha were in a sense the perfect opponent. The gold standard for the Royal Navy was set in an afternoon on October the 21st, 1805, when 27 ships under Admiral Horatio Nelson destroyed a Franco-Spanish armada off Cape Trafalgar. Despite being outnumbered by the combined fleet, 33 to 27, Nelson's victory was so complete that at the end of the battle, 27 enemy ships and 13,700 sailors were killed, in exchange for zero British ships lost and 1,600 men, of which Nelson himself was among them. The Battle of Trafalgar effectively ended Napoleon's dream of expanding beyond the continent, and secured Britain's position as master of the seas. Although Trafalgar was over a century old by the time of the Great War, its impact on generations of naval officers and enlisted men had never wavered. A 162-foot statue of Nelson has dominated central London since 1843, and to mark the centenary of the battle, a novel entitled Trafalgar Refought was released, in which Nelson commanded a fleet of modern battleships. Britain's greatest naval hero towered over the rest. Men of all walk and rank expected and hoped that one day they would take part in a climactic battle like Trafalgar. In short, the British public expected this as well, and when more came in August 1914, a Negro empire held its breath, waiting for the titanic showdown with Imperial Germany. A century of oceanic supremacy will do that to you. Instead, the German fleet remained tethered to its moorings, and what must be regarded as one of the great blunders of the war, not a single English soldier was lost due to enemy fleet action in August 1914, and the BEF arrived in France with zero casualties to report. Believe it or not, this had slightly worried the Admiralty. First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, and First Sea Lord, Jackie Fisher, fully expected the Germans to throw down the gauntlet. But what the British got was not to their liking. The war in the North Sea was fought against enemy commerce, and although the economic blockade of Germany was effective, it was not the sexy, headline-grabbing endeavor everyone expected. With the bulk of the fighting taking place on the continent, the colossal British fleets found themselves without a dancing partner, forcing them to take a secondary role. This was one of the reasons Churchill proposed the Darnells operation, to give his ships a chance to flex their muscles. The beginning of the U-boat campaign was a further agitation to naval planners. Merchant ships were being sunk, and initially it appeared the Admiralty had no way of countering. It was another item on the list of things which the Royal Navy had failed to prevent. The escape of von Spee and defeat at Coronel, 
the failure to track down the Goban and Brislau in the Mediterranean, the Dardanelles, and now the U-boat threat, meant that by 1916, the pressure on the Royal Navy to stop feeling sorry for itself was mounting, and no two men felt it worse. The commander-in-chief of the Grand Fleet, Sir John Jellicoe, and Vice Admiral David Beatty of Battlecruiser Squadron, two men of totally opposite upbringing and experiences, yet are irreversibly linked to the decisions made during the engagement of May the 31st. We'll start with Jellicoe. Sir John Rushworth Jellicoe is immortalized by Churchill's famous words that he was the only man on either side who could lose the war in an afternoon, was born into a middle-class Southampton family on December the 5th, 1859. Jellicoe's father, a captain in the Royal Mail Steam Packet Service, meant that Jellicoe grew up around the shipyards and, like many adolescents of the day, joined the Royal Navy as a 13-year-old cadet in the summer of 1872. Despite standing just 4 foot 6 at the time of his enlistment, young Jellicoe stood up from the rest of his class due to his enthusiasm for all things Navy. No job was deemed too insignificant or unimportant for the cadet, and he would carry this characteristic throughout his professional career. Even as a full bar admiral, many of his colleagues would criticize he did too much, failing to delve out work to subordinates. As Jellicoe climbed the ranks, he caught the attention of Jackie Fisher while serving as a staff member aboard the gunnery ship HMS Excellent. He served during the Boxer Rebellion, where we had his first meetings with senior German officials, including von Turfitz and Kaiser Wilhelm. Upon returning to England, Jellicoe was handpicked by Fischer to serve as Director of Naval Ordnance in 1907, right around the time the Anglo-German naval race was heating up. At his new post, Jellicoe had seen the construction of the HMS Dreadnought up close. In fact, it was his office which designed her gun turrets. While impressed with the new warships, there were several things which worried him especially if by some chance, Britain and Germany were to find themselves at war. For one, Jellicoe noticed that the Germans were constructing their ships with better armored plating above and below the waterline, making them more impervious to submarine or torpedo attack. His second concern was that gunnery in the Royal Navy had become lapse, and to make matters worse, their long-range shells were of poor quality. It did not take long for his keen eye to land him on the short list of admirals who could take over the Grand Fleet in the event of war. Both Fisher and Churchill saw in him a man who could lead by example, insomuch as he was never known to raise his voice. When Silent Jack spoke, people listened. He was a splendid administrator, who absorbed all the facts before making a final decision. While some felt he was a bit too cautious, few could argue there was anyone better to take over the principal fleet. As Jackie Fisher wrote, quote, He will be Nelson at Cape St. Vincent until he becomes boss at Trafalgar when Armageddon comes, end quote. So on the day Great Britain declared war on Germany, Jellicoe received orders to open a specially marked envelope that he'd been carrying around since the Sarajevo assassination. Upon opening the document, Jellicoe was officially named Commander-in-Chief of the Royal Navy Grand Fleet. Under his flagship, the dreadnought HMS Iron Duke, Jellicoe was now responsible for the 150 warships amassed at Scapa Flow in northern Scotland. With Jellicoe now at the top, he was faced with three main challenges. One, to maintain an effective blockade of Germany, two, actively patrol the home waters to ensure the safety of the home islands, and three, to find some way to destroy the German threat. While Jellicoe's biography mirrors that of a model student, David Beatty was the kid who broke all the rules. By 1916, Beatty had solidified himself as Britain's most famous wartime admiral, having engaged the Germans twice at the Heligoland in 1914 and at the Dogger Bank in 1915. Twelve years younger than Jellicoe, Beatty was an unlikely choice who would go on to become the youngest admiral since Nelson, 
having achieved his promotion at the age of 38, when most officers were seeking captaincy. Born on January 17, 1871 in Cheshire, Beatty was the only member of his family to enter naval service. His three brothers joined the army, where one would be killed in France during the Great War. Unlike Jellicoe, Beatty did not distinguish himself in his cadet days. He was beaten at least three times for various infractions, and graduated in the middle of his class. His naval career probably would not have amounted to much in more stable times, but fortunately, the situation in Sudan in 1896 gave him the chance to put some field experience under his belt, and he did not waste the opportunity. His courage under fire was noted when he calmly picked up a dud shell and threw it overboard. But his first break came two years later. As an unknown gunboat lieutenant, Beatty was given the task of escorting none other than future Secretary of State for War, Sir Herbert Kitchener, en route to his famous standoff at Fashoda. In their late-night discussions, Kitchener was impressed with his energetic young officer and made special note. But it was after his return to England when Beatty's life took a surprising turn. While on leave, he had a chance encounter with a married woman named Ethel Tree, who just happened to be the only daughter of American department store tycoon Marshall Field. The relationship between David and Ethel was complicated for many reasons. One, Ethel was already married. Given the conservative divorce laws of Edwardian England, Ethel had to divorce her husband in the United States, which in the end resulted in her losing custody of her sole child. The second issue was that if Beatty wanted Ethel to be a quote-unquote navy wife, he had married the wrong woman. Like her new husband, Ethel was demanding, arrogant, and tough, but at the same time had given Beatty a view of the world he might not have had otherwise. Introducing him to the inner circles of high society, the couple were soon dining with diplomats, politicians, and senior admiralty officials. While this was instrumental to his rise in rank, Beatty was quickly proving himself an exceptional officer. Known for his charismatic leadership, he was said to push his men and ships faster and harder than any officer in the Navy, and he typified the fighting captain persona to a T. Although men grumbled under strict regimes, he was an efficient leader, and his ships were soon winning prizes in the annual competitions. On January 1st, 1910, the hard-charging, hard-fighting David Beatty was promoted to Rear Admiral at the remarkably young age of 38. But personal ego threatened to derail his rapid ascension. That same year, he was offered the post of second-in-command of the Atlantic Fleet, after its previous commander, Sir John Jellicoe, was promoted to the Admiralty. To everyone's disbelief except his own, Beatty refused the job, citing he wanted an independent command closer to home. The Admiralty was, needless to say, taken aback by this, and the board decided that he should not be offered further employment. If he was lucky, he would spend his career pushing papers and never see command of a ship again. Fortunately, fate would intervene one more time, in the form of Sir Winston Churchill. In October 1911, Prime Minister Herbert Asquith reshuffled his cabinet, which saw young Winston become First Lord of the Admiralty. Churchill, who always had a soft spot for the marauding types, took an immediate liking to Beatty upon their first meeting. When they met in Churchill's office, Churchill reportedly said to Beatty, quote, You seem very young to be an admiral, in which Beatty replied, And you, sir, seem very young to be First Lord of the Admiralty. While Beatty was not overly impressed by Churchill in their initial meeting, the feeling was not mutual. The new First Lord was immediately taken, and made Beatty his naval secretary. In his new role, Beatty was responsible for arranging promotions and postings as they opened up, essentially comprising a list of candidates who he felt would be best suited to take such and such a post. It is of no surprise, then, that in the spring of 1913, 
command of the 1st Battlecruiser Squadron became available. The Battlecruiser Squadron, based out of the Firth of Forth near Roycythe, was the most sought-after appointment for a rear admiral. As Churchill put it, it represented the supreme combination of speed and firepower, in essence, the strategic cavalry of the Royal Navy. With Churchill's approval, Beatty took command on March 1, 1913, and it was not long before the Battlecruiser Squadron eclipsed the Grand Fleet in the eyes of the public. Beatty pushed his warships faster and harder than any other commander, conducting war exercises at 24 knots instead of the usual 14, and gunnery practice at nearly double the customary distance. With this, the Battlecruiser Squadron under Beatty had all the dash and swagger, which in the eyes of the English public embodied everything they liked about the Royal Navy. In short, Beatty was the Han Solo of the North Sea. For Reinhard Scheer, Beatty's warships presented an imposing obstacle. First Battlecruiser Squadron, consisting of 10 modern battlecruisers, 12 light cruisers, and 27 destroyers, was a detachment of Jellicoe's Grand Fleet, and operated like its first response unit. If the Germans were to put to sea, Beatty's vanguard was to use their superior speed to intercept the oncoming fleet, giving Jellicoe and the Scapa Flow ships enough time to swoop in and destroy them piecemeal. For Scheer, the tricky part was how to exploit that gap to the best of his ability. Excluding Beatty's warships, Jellicoe still commanded an overwhelming force. When he sailed for Jutland on May the 30th, Jellicoe outnumbered Scheer 28-16 in dreadnoughts, 9-5 in battlecruisers, and 113-72 in destroyers, light cruisers, and other support craft. This saying nothing of the disparity in firepower, where the British ships outmatched the Germans in number of guns, caliber, and weight of shell. The simple arithmetic had told Scheer that the Grand Fleet needed to be avoided at all costs. On the other hand, the German High Seas Fleet outnumbered Beatty's squadron at a 2 to 1 ratio. So if Scheer could entice Beatty into battle before the arrival of Jellicoe, he believed there was a real chance that he could deal the British an uncompromising blow. The encirclement and annihilation of a capital ship squadron so close to home would devastate public morale, and at the same time, give the Imperial Navy a victory to call its own. Immediately after his appointment, Scheer put the wheels in motion. In February, he outlined his policy in a document entitled, Guiding Principles for Sea Warfare in the North Sea. Despite the lengthy title, Scheer's thesis can be boiled down to three central points. One, the disparity in ships rules out an engagement with the main British battle fleet, meaning if Jellicoe shows up, you get the hell out of there. Two, raiding parties should be used to draw out small numbers of British warships. And three, use every weapon at Germany's disposal to counter British threats. Armed with his new proposal and the support of Alfred von Tirpitz, Scheer presented his policy to the Kaiser. In short, Scheer was not arguing for anything new or radical. The Germans had been using the same model for the first two years of war. Essentially, Scheer's proposal was a copycat of the original plan, which led to the Battle of the Dogger Bank in January 1915. Using the battlecruisers of Admiral Franz Hipper as reconnaissance forces, the Germans would again attack coastal targets along the English coast, hoping to draw Beatty out into the open. Once it was confirmed Beatty was en route, Hipper would reverse course and steam full speed back towards Wilhelmshaven, except this time there would be one notable exception. When Hipper and Beatty first met at the Dogger Bank, the High Seas Fleet was not at sea. In Scheer's new plan, however, the entire fleet, 100 warships, including 16 dreadnoughts, would be waiting in anchor at the mouth of the Skagerrak, the waterway separating Norway with the Jutland Peninsula. With Beatty in hot pursuit, Hipper would draw the English ships into the waiting maw of the German dreadnoughts. If everything went according to plan, 
Beatty would have no time to correct his mistake. The main battle fleet would surround the British squadron, pummeling them to destruction with the full veracity of their broadsides. While Shear's plan depended on a number of factors beyond his control, such as the weather, Beatty taking the bait and the avoidance of the Grand Fleet, it did not take long for the Kaiser to overcome his doubts. In a 180 from his decree of the previous year, Wilhelm approved Shear's plan. Effective immediately, the Imperial fleet could resume regular sorties. Over the next three months, Scheer would attempt to draw the British out, but with little to show for it. A mix of poor weather and technical errors left the two navies agitated. The Admiralty were aware of increasing German activity, yet each time they put to sea, the Germans were long gone. Scheer had made two sorties in February and March 1916, and four more times in April and May. Only once did the German raiders ever succeed in reaching the English coast. The problem, which Scheer often encountered, was that each time he put to sea, the British were always one step ahead. The high seas fleet would be in position off the Jutland, but Shear would be forced to turn back early when scouts reported that Jellicoe was coming out of harbour. This chess game played out for four months, with Shear and Hipper, as well as Jellicoe and Beattie, returning home empty-handed. The reason why Shear's plan had faltered to this point is because the British knew in advance that they were coming. What the Germans could not wrap their heads around was that their top secret wireless channels had been cracked, and since the start of the war, Admiralty cryptographers were reading their messages like a book. The Germans, you see, refused to believe that their channels had been compromised, and whenever the British fleets foiled their attempts, they blamed it on espionage or neutral fishermen. This was an extraordinary piece of luck. Unlike the Second World War, where intelligence had to be carefully selected to avoid tipping the Germans off, this was not a problem in the first. In short, the Germans remained so confident in their codes that it was not until February 1917, when the Zimmermann telegram was published front page of the New York Times, that Berlin finally recognized something was wrong. Forming the nucleus of Admiralty Intelligence were the efforts of the civilian cryptographers of Room 40. Named after the abandoned room in the London Admiralty Building, Room 40 was very much the predecessor of the more famous Bletchley Park in the Second World War. While Room 40 is mostly known for deciphering the Zimmerman telegram, its influence in the naval war and Jutland battle cannot be understated. Formed in October 1914, under the guidance of Rear Admiral Henry Oliver, the Director of Naval Intelligence, Room 40 was the eyes and ears of the Royal Navy until November 1918. Lacking the drama of Bletchley Park and the Enigma, Room 40 had benefited from a few extraordinary pieces of luck from the very start. A German light cruiser, the Magdeburg had run aground off the Gulf of Finland on the 26th of August 1914. In the excitement, one of the code books containing a key to the cipher had been left behind in the captain's cabin. When a Russian boarding party searched the wreck, they found one of the code books locked inside the captain's safe and dutifully handed it over to the British. Essentially, these code books were like a dictionary, where cipher clerks would match the letterings in the original message to the appropriate columns and thus decipher the hidden messages letter by letter. By December 1914, the British had obtained four separate codebooks for naval, commercial, and military channels. Like its successor, Bletchley Park, Room 40 and its goings-on were strictly confidential. Civilians who worked on the project upheld their oath of secrecy well after the war had come to an end. In fact, only a handful of senior officials were privy to its information. Only the First Lord, the First Sea Lord, and the Admiralty War Group knew of its existence. And in terms of fleet commanders, only John Jellicoe and David Beatty were aware of its existence. While the work produced in Room 40 was instrumental to the success of the naval war, 
its decryptors never achieved the same level of notoriety as their successors at Bletchley. For example, Room 40 never produced an Alan Turing or a Colossus machine, although some of its staff, like Dilly Knox, would become important figures in the development of Bletchley. They were brilliant mathematicians, scientists, and linguists, who worked long hours for a rather thankless job. Many admirals were suspicious of these civilian codebreakers. It was one thing to decipher a coded signal, but it was another thing to interpret them. Jellicoe, for example, who respected the work of Room 40, wanted all intercepted codes concerning the German fleet to be sent to his own decoding staff aboard his flagship. Jellicoe's primary concern was that by the time it took to intercept, process, and forward the information to the fleets, any intel they received ran the risk of being outdated, or worse, misinterpreted. This inherent suspicion will be justified on the very eve of the Battle of Jutland, which would give the Germans an advantage they didn't know they had. So to wrap things up for this week, Scheer's plans were not producing the engagements he had envisioned. The coastal targets selected for bombardment, usually Lowstoff, Golston, and Yarmouth, were too far south, giving Beatty and Jellicoe added time to put to sea. The closest engagement occurred on the 24th of March, while Franz Hipper was away on stress leave. On that day, the German battlecruisers were temporarily commanded by Rear Admiral Frederick Boddicker. In the early afternoon, Boddicker's squadron succeeded in drawing a small British force out of Harwich. The Harwich force, consisting of three light cruisers and 18 destroyers, met the German battlecruisers off the coast of Yarmouth. The engagement was a brief affair. As soon as the British commander saw the overwhelming German force, he turned back to home port. In the short chase, the British flagship Conquest was hit by a 12-inch shell, which caused 40 casualties on board and reduced its speed significantly. However, Boddicker did not give chase. He knew Beatty was steaming southwards in his direction and quickly headed east to meet up with Shear, heading west from the Jutland. Having heard that Jellicoe had let Scapa flow, Shear reversed course and returned to the safety of the Heligoland. The results of that day were of bitter disappointment. No significant meetings with Beatty were reported but it nevertheless resulted in the loss of one of Germany's best battlecruisers, the SMS Seidlitz, which struck a mine tearing a 50-foot hole in her hull. If this was not frustrating enough, the politicians in Berlin would add salt to the wound. On April the 25th, news arrived that the German government had given in to American demands and indefinitely suspended the U-boat campaign. The second row of the United States occurred when the liner SS Sussex had been torpedoed in the English Channel. American lives were at risk, and President Wilson took the next step and threatened to break off diplomatic relations if Germany did not end the campaign. Now you might be wondering, wait a minute, didn't the first Yibo campaign end in September 1915? Well, yes it did, but what had happened was that Germany had undergone a quote-unquote intensified campaign in the aftermath. This intensified campaign was supposed to coincide with Falkenhayn's attack at Verdun. Berlin had initially dodged American anger by using intensified in place of unrestricted. A different word, but it was essentially the same thing. The intensified campaign had a short lifespan. It was approved on February the 29th and was suspended just two months after. While Scheer was really ticked off that they had bowed to the demands of a neutral country, the realization that so many submarines were now available had created some options. He spent the next few weeks looking over the options for his next raid, and arrived at a number of conclusions. The first was that he now had a large number of modern submarines, which could be put to use against enemy warships, aka an ambush to weaken the British vanguards prior to the capital engagement. The second 
was that submarines were excellent espionage weapons. By stationing a small number off the English ports, they could offer real-time intel on whether Beatty or Jellicoe were leaving port. This way, Shearer and Hipper would have sufficient warning and not be caught blindsided. The third modification to Shearer's plan was that the coastal targets were too conservative. Lowestoft and Yarmouth, although housing small Royal Navy squadrons, were not exactly the most prestigious of targets. Aside from a few summer homes, there was nothing there of military importance. In short, raiding them would not bring about the response which Shear was hoping for. Instead, Shear would attack directly at Beatty. With the battlecruiser squadron, based off Firth IV near Roycyth, Shear would attack right under their noses. The new target was Sunderland, 100 miles to the south of Beatty's home port. This assault, right in Beatty's backyard, would demand an aggressive response, possibly with the entire 1st Battlecruiser Squadron taking part. Whatever size of his vanguard, Shear hoped the submarine screen would knock two or three Beatty's warships out of commission, before the might of the High Seas Fleet could deliver the coup de grace. With a bombardment date set for May the 23rd, Shear dispatched his submarines one week prior to take up positions off the enemy coast. This proved to be a critical mistake. As usual, weather intervened and the coastal areas were sapped with fog and low visibility. Furthermore, the battlecruiser sidelitzed, damage in the previous operation, was not quite ready to resume regular sea duties, and Shear was not able to risk the operation without one of his key ships. Day after day, Shear and Hipper were forced to wait out the delays, all while the submarines were running dangerously low on fuel. In the meantime, Shear drew up a Plan B a final tinkering of his plans which would result with the Battle of Jutland. Aboard his flagship, he adopted a new strategy. Instead of sending Hipper towards Sunderland, he would have the raiding party take a cruise off the Norwegian coast. Their presence in the Skagerrak would undoubtedly lure Beatty out all the same, except now it would require the British to steam further from home waters. Theoretically, this would also give Shear a 6-7 to seven hour warning if Jellicoe had joined the pursuit more than enough time to destroy Beatty's armada and make it back home. It was not until May the 30th, 1916, that Shear decided the operation must continue. With submarine and zeppelin reconnaissance hindered due to weather, the Imperial Navy would proceed with Shear's Skagerrak plan. At 2 o'clock in the morning, on May the 31st, the gates of Wilhelmshaven swung open. Franz Hipper's first scouting group was the first to leave. Under his command, divided into smaller squadrons and flotillas, were 40 ships, five battlecruisers, five light cruisers, and 30 destroyers. After Hipper's group navigated the minefields and cleared the Jade, the main battle fleet began the procession. At 3.30 a.m., 16 dreadnoughts, six pre-dreadnought battleships, six light cruisers, and 31 destroyers crept their way from port. As dawn broke, 99 German warships were at sea. Unfortunately for Reinhard Scheer, his fleet's movements had not gone undetected. In the depths of the Admiralty Building in London, Room 40 had intercepted his wireless messages several hours earlier. Almost as soon as he ordered his ships to raise anchor, Beatty and Jellicoe had already put to sea. Around 5.40 in the evening, on Tuesday, May the 30th, the first reports indicating that the Germans were intending to sail within 24 hours began to percolate. And by 9.30 that evening, Beatty's first battle squadron was already at sea. Thanks to this intercept, the British had a four-hour head start meaning that the Germans had less than two hours to lure and destroy Beatty's ships before the arrival of Jellicoe and the Grand Fleet. While this should have been a decisive advantage, a critical blunder in Room 40 almost derailed the whole operation. As we saw earlier, 
The admiralties of the fleet were not overly comfortable with the civilians being their eyes and ears, and at this crucial moment their suspicion was justified. On the morning of May the 31st, with both nations' fleets steaming on a collision course, the Director of Operations at the Admiralty, Captain Thomas Jackson, found himself imprinted in the history books for all the wrong reasons. On that morning, Jackson entered room 40 and demanded to know where the wireless stations picked up the call sign DK, which was the call sign for Shear's flagship. It was a straightforward question, but the problem was that Jackson had a profound distrust of room 40's activities, and he resented the fact that civilians could interpret naval signals with as much authority as the admirals. Needless to say, Jackson's attitude did not endear him to Room 40's staff, and they responded to the inquest with a straightforward answer. The last signal coming from Shear's flagship indicated that the high seas fleet remained anchored in Wilhelmshaven. Without any follow-up questions, Jackson informed the Admiralty that Shear had yet to leave port, and that whichever ships left that morning, the main enemy battle fleet was not with them. What Jackson, Jellicoe, Beatty, and everyone in Room 40 knew was that DK was Shear's harbor call sign, meaning that whenever he went to sea, he transferred it to a harbor station and adopted a new one. In other words, every signal coming from DK originated from within the port, as Shear only used it while at anchor. Upon receiving the news that Shear's flagship was reportedly still in dock, Jellicoe was misled into believing that the German action was another raiding party, much like the ones of the previous months. The Grand Fleet Chief forwarded this information onto Beatty, who by 2pm on May the 31st was within 50 miles of Hitler's battlecruisers. The significance of this intelligence blunder would be felt in two ways. One, since it was reported that Scheer was not at sea, Beatty was ordered to continue steaming east towards the Jutland coast. Jellicoe's original order had Beatty rendezvous with the Grand Fleet once it was 260 miles from Roycythe, in the event they encountered Scheer's battle fleet. Of course, Jellicoe and Beatty now had no reason to expect Scheer's warships, and thus adopted a more relaxed posture. The second reason is the most obvious. Neither the Germans nor British had any idea they were headed straight for one another. Both Reinhard Scheer and Franz Hipper were fully expecting to catch the British unaware. They had no way of knowing that the British had caught their wireless messages and had put to sea four hours earlier, effectively nullifying the timetable which the Germans had counted on. The British, on the other hand, knew they were going to encounter German warships on that day, but did not know that the entire German fleet was headed straight for them. At 3.45 in the afternoon on Wednesday, May the 31st, 1916, the destroyers of Beatty and Hipper's battle squadrons would make contact, and for the next 55 minutes would engage one another in a hit-and-run chase, the first of five phases of the Battle of Jutland. Next week, we'll examine the opening phase of the battle, commonly labeled as the Run to the South. Upon encountering Beatty's vanguard, Hipper did exactly as planned. Outnumbered and outgunned, Hipper reversed course and steered his squadron south. True to form, Beatty gave chase, hoping to run down and destroy the enemy fleet. For almost an hour, the British and German battlecruisers would exchange furious blows as the contest for the North Sea roared to life. The run to the south would not go well for Beatty. His 26,000-ton flagship, the HMS Lion, received heavy damage, while two of his best battlecruisers, the HMS Indefatigable and HMS Queen Mary, would suffer cataclysmic explosions, killing 2,300 sailors and officers before the fight was over. Despite the loss of these two great ships, Beatty did not give up the chase, and by 5pm that evening, 
would see the silhouettes of Shear's high seas battle fleet materialize out of the mists, bearing down at full speed. Alright, that's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to send me an email at thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. Again, that is thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you're interested in supporting the show, we have a donate button up on the homepage. So if you have any loose change you want to unload, feel free to make a one-time donation. Every little bit helps, and it goes a long way in keeping the show going. Another way to help out is to look us up on iTunes and leave a 5-star review, which will help keep us afloat in the rankings and attract any new listeners out there. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.